Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with David Buss, an American evolutionary psychologist at the University of Texas in Austin. He's one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology, like along with people like Steven Pinker and stuff. His current research is on sex differences in mate selection, mate attraction, infidelity, and the emotions of jealousy, lust, and love. But that didn't stop me trying to get him to talk about corporate involvement in the way that, for example, we eat. Like I talked to him like at length about like, yeah, but because, for example, he brought up the idea that we eat a lot of fat and sugar uh, because of its scarcity in our evolutionary history. And I said, yeah, but people are trying to push us into eating fat and sugar. What's going on with all that stuff? It's a really good conversation. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Listen to shout outs. Here's some of your comments on previous episodes. Irie says, I just wanted to express my delight at your podcast. Educational, highly interesting, funny and brilliant. I love it so much. I just heard the episode with Bob Roth. Beautiful and encouraging. I love the ending. We are all one. And I love the Joe Dispenza podcast. Keep it up, you lovely man. They were both beautiful, educational episodes. And Bob Roth, he's a great teacher. And I'd like to speak to Joe Dispenza more. Thanks for that, Irie. Kimberly Thway Alt. I just listened to your Under the Skin episode with Michael Singer. Illuminating, insightful, invigorating are all words that came to mind. I think about Michael Singer a lot. Sometimes I go running, uh, Kimberly, and I think about Michael Singer. I think about letting that pain pass through, letting pain pass through you. I'm in grief at the moment. I'm really sort of just trying to do what he suggests, which is watch it. Ram Das says a similar thing, that we must be able to observe grief, allow it to take its time, not to have an expectation and not to have a sort of a template in mind for how, for example, grief affects us. Aisha Marie Watson. Hi, Russell. Me and my partner Chris came to your gig at Newcastle. I can't say how much you've made his absolute life. My partner listens to your podcast every night to go to sleep. Hey, watch out. Thank you so much for a great show. Absolutely amazing. The shows have been incredible. The tour is sold out. I'm going to Blackpool, Hull, St. Helens, Stoke, and the Brixton Academy in London in the next week or so. They're all sold out, but you might be able to get returns at some of those venues. And I tell you, the shows in Bristol and Bath were so moving and enjoyable. I adore doing them. I'm almost overwhelmed at the intensity of these experiences. Now listen, if you're not a member of my mailing list, you should go to russellbrand.com and sign up for it now. There's a one-day outdoor event with me, Wim Hof and Vandana Shiva on July the 10th. If you want to register your interest, you have to sign up for my mailing list at russellbrand.com. You should do that now. And if you want additional content around uh, well-being and personal development, please go to my Awakening Side channel on YouTube and hit subscribe. There's videos with Michael Singer as well as many of the people we have here on Luminary and me commentating on... I don't know, various social issues, but from a spiritual perspective. And also, as a Luminary subscriber, you can also listen to Above the Noise, my guided meditation podcast. The latest one is called Gut Feeling and Getting in Tune with the Consciousness of the Belly. Right now, though, it's time for Under the Skin with evolutionary psychologist David Buss. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we're told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. David, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Glad to join you. Looking forward to our conversation. I've got so many questions. From what you know of evolutionary biology, obviously I know that it's a great deal. What are the most obvious errors that we have made 
in the way that we construct our social systems, for example, around familial units and mating pairings? Yeah, well, that's an interesting and big question. Uh, uh, I would say that we have a mismatch between the environments in which humans evolved uh, and our modern environments. So we evolved in the context of small group living uh, with groups of 50 to 150 to 200 or so with a lot of close kin around. And so even things like um, uh, peer bonding, which is, which is an important mating strategy of humans, that occurred within the context of extended kin. So people had fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and cousins and you know genetic relatives of varying degrees. And so there's a way in which this isolated nuclear family structure in modern environments is um, quite discrepant from ancestral environments and I think creates some problems. So for example, uh, increased rates of depression. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that Depression is caused by a lack of social connectedness. Uh, when people don't feel part of a group, uh, they don't, they're not embedded within a context of family and uh, extended kin. Uh, and so we feel, a lot of people feel lonely and isolated in the modern environment. And I think rates of depression and, and to some degree anxiety have gone up. And we've seen this in the pandemic. Uh, as well, where people uh, it, during lockdowns, people are more isolated and there's been a spike in depression and anxiety. So that's one area in which there's been a um, evolutionary mismatch between modern and ancestral environments. Now, of course, not all mismatches are bad. I mean, for example, our ancestors died early. You know, we lived lives, our ancestors that were that were indeed short, uh, brutish and had high rates of mortality. Uh, due to things like small group warfare, for example, uh, many traditional cultures, as many as uh, 30% of the men die as a consequence of warfare with other uh, neighboring groups. And so our death rates due to war are substantially lower. Uh, we still have death rates and homicides uh, and suicides that we want to get rid of. But uh, statistically, if you look at the, the trends, and Steve Pinker has pointed this out in some of his books, uh, homicide rates have declined dramatically. So in some ways, things are a lot better. We have modern medicine, which they didn't have. So ancestrally, you get a uh, uh, an arrow tip lodged in your body, you're gonna die of an infection. Uh, modern environment, we have modern medicine that causes us to um, live longer. So, uh, so, so we have to examine on a case-by-case -case basis. Most of what I've looked at uh, and most of what I study is human mating strategies. And so part of your question had to do with pair bonds. And uh, I guess what I would say about that is that pair bonded mating, which is what I, I call long-term committed mating, uh, is one strategy within a menu of human mating strategies. So it's not the only strategy that people have. People have short-term mating. Um, and I don't know if this is true, Russell, but I've, I've heard that at some point in your past, you occasionally engaged in short-term mating. Um, the terms did vary, but I would say they were on the scale of short. And, and, you, well, and you've also done some long-term mating. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's another kind of odd 
mismatch with long-term mating, with pair bonding, is that people didn't live uh, till 70, 80, 90 years old. Uh, and so the idea that we are somehow supposed to be contented with one mate for 50 years, that's evolutionarily unprecedented. Uh, and so humans have uh, what I think is most characteristic, or at least as part of our menu of mating strategies, is serial mating. As mating with one person for a while, breakup, most people in the modern environment experience romantic breakups, and then perhaps mate with another person for a while, kind of intermediate serial mating. So I think that's been an important part of our mating strategy. And th that's one way in which uh, modern environments are, are, I think, good because we're, we are not obligated in the modern environment to stick with one mate. And last, I'll just mention, we've also historically had polygynous mating. So one man, multiple women. Occasionally in some cultures, polyandrous mating, which is one woman, more than one man, typically two brothers. But, uh, but so I think that's part of our repertoire as well. Historically, men in positions of power, and then even men who uh, in the modern environment who have the ability and resources or charm or charisma or attractiveness to attract multiple women um, often do so when they can, when the risks are low, when the opportunities are there. The comedian Chris Rock, uh, I think, was the one who said, um, men are only as faithful as their opportunity. Um, I think that's a, an overstatement for comedic purposes because many men have opportunities for short-term sex and choose not to because they don't want to jeopardize their long-term pair bond. But nonetheless, some men do. And so some we, we sometimes try to have our cake and eat it too. We'll turn to the field of uh, sexual behavior because it's so fascinating. Who isn't, and because it's a, you know, an area of particular expertise for you. But I'm struck initially, David, by how what you initially explained to us is perhaps at odds and perhaps sometimes obliged to coalesce awkwardly with our defining contemporary myth of progressivism. It is incumbent upon us to present to the world a facade of ongoing progress. And whilst progress is evident in the fields that you have notably mentioned, mortality, medicine, technology, what strikes me is that we live at odds with our nature. When imagining how humankind might live, what better resource do we have than how we lived for hundreds of thousands of years? And why oughtn't we approach your knowledge in this field from a perspective of, if not natural selection, deliberate selection. These aspects of our anthropological past are appealing. It seems for hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in groups of this size and we were successful in doing so. Without getting into the, sort of the, the almost limitless nuances of interrelationship and social structure, but just broadly speaking, if we can recognise, ah, for hundreds of thousands of years, people lived generally in this way, and we don't have to you know, go out and sort of be smashed up by saber-toothed tigers or war with a neighbouring tribe. There are areas where, it, sort of, where we might evolve because we do indeed have technology. We do indeed have medicine. No one's proposing that we roll those back. But when we look at the way, and I know that now we're sort of somewhat, um, there's a, you know, we're moving away just even speculatively from your field by posing the question, what magnetic forces 
create the kind of structures that we live within now, where power is centralized, where people live in urban conurbations, where you know from agriculture onwards the you know through the various revolutions of agriculture industry and technology the advantages to individuals while you know while obvious and evident particularly in instances where there would be a financial and economic advantage to those centralized forces uh, that the, the progress is can easily be charted when it comes to the subjects such as isolation alienation despair drug dependency it's clear that we are creatures now that live in a kind of captivity, in a kind of open prison. Do you ever become frustrated that we don't socially and politically enact in responsible and sensible ways the obvious findings of, um, the, 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 from your particular area of expertise? Yeah, um, I, I do. I mean, I think that uh, one way that I would phrase it uh, broadly before trying to get at your specific question is that all we have is our evolved psychology that evolved over several millions of years. And in the here and now, we are stuck with this evolved psychology. And in some cases, it produces bad things. And in some cases, it produces good things. And that's why I think your answer to your question has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. So just for example, we evolved food preferences for fat and sugar. Uh, and so in the modern environments, though, fat and sugar are readily abundant and they're packaged into high carbohydrate foods, fast food restaurants. And so we have problems of obesity and type 2 diabetes that are really evolutionarily unprecedented. So we have to, in some ways, control our evolved taste preference. So this is one way in which it's, it's led us astray. The other one, another is that I pointed out earlier is that um, we do feel more isolated, more alienated uh, as a context uh, because of the modern context where despite being surrounded by thousands or millions of people, we still feel alone. In part, I'll mention one other element of that, of why we feel so alone and perhaps why depression rates have increased uh, is because we don't have deep friendships. So, and, and by that, I mean, our ancestors would have faced the trials and tribulations where you 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 know where your who your true friends are because you go through times of stress. People will save your life when you're ill or injured, uh, and we go through fewer of these you know um, stressful life events, which really reveal the depth of your uh, social relationships. And we don't go through those anymore. And so I think that's one way. That's why I tell in the mating domain, which, as I said, is really my area of specialty. When people are considering a long term mate, I urge them to go on a vacation together, take two weeks and go to a foreign country, uh, put the relationship through stress tests. And that and that reveals information that you don't get when times are good. Uh, and so I think that that the lack of tests of our true friendships and true romantic relationships uh, is uh, the lack of these tests is part of why we feel more alienated in the modern environment. Again, relevant to my area of expertise, we have uh, pornography uh, and Internet dating are two technological advances, if you will, or two technologies that we are, are consuming in huge abundance. So a uh, majority of men consume pornography at some point, sometimes men get addicted to it. 
Uh, and the internet dating is the major form of meeting people. Uh, we don't tend to go to bars anymore and, and meet people. And so this has kind of changed the whole matrix of the mating game where, for example, with internet dating, there's this perception that there are thousands or millions of potential mates for you out there. And we experience um, decision paralysis because oh, this person doesn't meet quite you know, my standards on 19 variables. So I think I'm going to keep looking. And so there's this, uh, because of this perception, there are millions of opportunities out there uh, that also produces a decrease in commitment. And we're seeing that as well with a decrease in uh, intimate relationships, a decrease in even sexual behavior, um, frequency of sexual intercourse and decreases uh, in marriage. So it's uh, and I think it's partly due to both of those factors. Uh, pornography consumption, I think, and I, I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, uh, I think takes the edge, takes the sexual edge off of males so that they feel less motivated to go out and have real life sexual interactions uh, with women where they have to actually do things like have conversations and establish a relationship and so forth. Um, and so I think that even things like the overconsumption of pornography, and I'm not opposed to pornography in, in general. I mean, in some ways it produces beneficial effects, but, uh, but I think it, it takes the edge off of males and decreases their, their sexual motivation to have in real life mating relationships. Let's take, uh, and I will move generally in the direction of your expertise because otherwise we might as well talk about football but like just as, as we mentioned at the beginning of the your answer to the previous question the preponderance of sugar and fat i feel that you know of course we evolved to value foods that would be scarce and are high in energy but there is a reason that these foods are now abundantly available and those reasons are economic so the like the if you were trying to design a society that was beneficial to the maximum number of individuals you would promote foods we evolved in harmony with that are beneficial to us yeah. you wouldn't promote foods that are high in sugar and fat because you obesity diabetes heart disease but the reason that we do promote those foods make those foods freely available not freely available but readily available and cheaply available is because it is profitable and for because of evolutionary psychology we're sort of unable to discern correctly whether or not yes. we should be eating them because it bypasses us. I have the image, David, of evolution as a kind of river and we as individuals float upon that river. And and this is obviously, you know, particularly relevant in your field. When, like when I see how like cats behave when another, how male cats behave when a female cat is on heat and a cat will travel five kilometers for a mating opportunity, you realize that that individual cat's psychology, such as it might be, is a, a pretty blunt tool when faced with the tirade and deluge of evolutionary force and i feel that it, i think what interests me is how do we use our understanding to create social systems that are beneficial to us of course i'm interested as an individual i am an individual and i'm fascinated by how we might have mating social and sexual protocols that are kind of irrelevant redundant unhelpful although i can see sort of you know that 
monogamy and mating pairings are sort of helpful in loads and loads of ways, sociologically, socially, religiously, like loads of ways I can see they're beneficial. I'm interested, I suppose, in using this vast wealth of knowledge that you have accrued to implement and encourage ideas that go beyond the kind of, what do I want to say, coffee table musings of a sort of late, rational, mechanical, nihilistic culture, uh, you know, and, and that's the culture that I sort of find myself in. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a tough question because there are always trade-offs. So as you mentioned with, with fast food industry, uh, their goal is to make profit. Uh, and so they, they design products that hijack our evolved psychology, in this case, our evolved psychology of, of food preferences. Um, but the same thing occurs on, uh, with social media, uh, for example. That is, we, we have an evolved, here's a, another dimension, uh, an evolved psychology uh, that we evolved in the, in the context of small groups that had status hierarchies. And all groups have them. Some people are up, some are down, some have high ranks, some low rank, often informally, sometimes formally. Uh, but one of the critical cues to status has been the attention structure. That is, the people who are high in status are the people to whom the most people pay the most attention. And so, in a way, social media is able to, uh, and other pro modern products are able to hijack our evolved status psychology, uh, where you get social influencers, um, uh, for, for better or for worse, that uh, parasitize the attention structure, which is then a cue to status, uh, without necessarily any um, substance behind that. Um, now, like I don't know, it, an older example would be Paris Hilton, who was said to get famous just for being famous, and 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 you know, a more modern example might be I don't know the Kardashians or or something where uh, I'm not sure exactly what their appeal is, but clearly they're they're hijacking or another word for it is parasitizing our evolved psychology of, of attention and influence. And, um, you know, and so this is another way in which modern environments can, um, can be harmful. And there's some evidence, for example, that uh, the higher people, the more people consume social media, the more they tend to get anxious and depressed. And another feature of that I will mention is um, our evolved psychology of social comparison. You know, so we we evolved to compare ourselves to other people because that's that's what it's all about. You know, how am I doing? Evolution is a, is an inherently competitive process whereby it's those who are a bit better that's who are able to solve problems, adaptive problems, a little bit better, a little bit more effectively, uh, beat out those who are less able. Uh, to solve adaptive problems. And so, but in the modern environment, people are able to parasitize our evolved psychology of social comparison where, for example, this is, a, this is really um, hits girls and women hard because appearance is often such a central focus. And so there's been a tremendous spike in the modern world of eating disorders uh, because, um, uh, and anxieties surrounding physical appearance because uh, people are designed to compare how they look compared to other people. And so they get on social media, they, they look at the Kardashians or they look at supermodels and they find themselves inadequate by comparison. 
ancestrally, your, your competitors would not have been uh, the Kardashians or, uh, or famous celebrities or, or whatever. They would have been the people in your immediate group. And so there's, that's another way in which I think the modern technology of social media hijacks or evolves psychology, sometimes to very bad effect. Now, now I have to counterbalance it, and I know maybe I'm, I, I don't mean to evade your, your question. I don't, I don't have a magic bullet or secret sauce that can magically create a social system that would solve all problems. I mean, so like even things like, you know, if you implemented a policy that said, uh, no, actually, we want to promote healthy foods, healthy eating, and try to reduce rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes, uh, well, exactly how do you do that? Do you prevent people from selling things to people who want to buy them? You know, I'm, I'm not sure um, if, that's, if that's a good thing or a bad thing, or there are trade-offs associated with that of restricting individual freedoms um, associated with free markets. Hmm. So um, I'm just kind of rambling on about several different things, social comparison, eating, status, hierarchies, and mating. Yeah, there's a lot going on here, David. Uh, but there's a few things that have struck me. One is your use of the term hijacking. And it's interesting because, generally speaking, the hijacks are conducted by terrorists. And uh, like I feel that there's a sort of a, a kind of a, a degree of terror in the way that uh, our that contemporary social engineering is structured, that we're continually... Uh, agitated into states of fear and desire and another phrase you used was parasiting i was thinking about like the sort of the yes the sort of the examples of in unsubstantiated celebrity but i was also thinking about as well aristocracy and perhaps significantly the the kind of uh, centrifugal systems of power uh, around um sort of great corporate wealth and the way that these kind of um low goss are um, validated and accepted as sort of meaningful power. I, I know it's not the same, like it doesn't have the same impact seeing a sort of a photograph of Pfizer or Amazon as it would like an attractive and shapely female, depending on what, what particular shapes or what kind of uh, you know gender or sex that you're attracted to. But it's, I suppose what interests me, David, and although I'm hugely interested in mating strategies and really interested in morality and ethics and the the obstacles and tension that exists between uh, the way that we are evolved to mate, form bonds, create social systems, breed. It's and the way that we're encouraged to socially, what I feel like and what I keep sensing is that we are ignoring clear clues as to how we might organize society differently and how current social engineering is at odds with our um, general broad benefit. And when it comes to something like individual choice or free market, when it comes to something like you know, fast food, I think, good God, you know, the waves of agricultural advantage, the irresponsibility of boards that are supposed to regulate and control uh, the practices around, you know, production of food and uh, um, awareness around diabetes and heart disease and cancer and the lack of transparency around the types of foods that are popularly and cheaply available. Um, you know, for me, I suppose how you would do that is you would heavily tax and control or regulate, decentralize and break down the companies that pro you'd make it unprofitable to provide people those kind of foods, I suppose. And, uh, 
you know, I don't think that's freedom of individual choice you're impeding there, but freedom of corporate power. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, you you could do that. And I mean, as a society, we may choose to do that. I mean, I think we do do that to some degree, perhaps could do it more. History of the modern world has been a series of that kind of thing. So, I mean, it used to be uh, like cigarettes, um, which we know we've known for decades are smoking cigarettes is bad for you. It creates lung cancer and all kinds of other health problems. But it used to be not that long ago, uh, you'd see television commercials with uh, medical doctors smoking cigarettes and recommending brands of cigarettes. So now that's that's illegal, at least in, in I think in the UK and the United States and probably most of Western Europe. Um, so things do change to regulate these things, but it's been slow. Um, but with some things, I would say we also, I mean, the food thing and cigarettes uh, and even alcohol uh, to some degree uh, are more known entities. That is, we know the dam- we know now what damages they can produce, um, but some things we don't know. So, for example, even the areas that I mentioned earlier, pornography and internet dating, we don't, we don't really fully know scientifically what the consequences of this are, you know, and so, um, and so issues of exactly how to regulate them for the benefit of society or, the, or, or benefit of people more generally, or how to eliminate, how to preserve the beneficial aspects of them and eliminate the um, detrimental aspects of them. We, we don't have that knowledge with some of these more modern technologies. And we do with just, I mentioned alcohol. I mean, we evolved, I mean, there's pretty good evidence that alcohol has been around, but you know, it used to be our ancestors would consume fermented fruit, you know, fruit would drop from the tree, get slightly fermented, but these would be very low, low doses of alcohol. And it makes, gives you a mild buzz perhaps gave our chimpanzee cousins a mild buzz, those who were uh, frugivores. But the modern technology has produced alcohol in concentrations that are evolutionarily unprecedented. And so you get uh, even, well, wine and beer are fairly old, but uh, distilled liquor is is relatively recent, perhaps 7,000 years or so. And so, um, and so we know that we have, for example, rates of alcoholism and or alcohol uh, dependence alcohol problems, in part because of this, um, uh, again, modern drug that is evolutionarily ancient, but is produced in concentrations that had never existed in our evolutionary past. Uh, And so it's, again, kind of hijacking or parasitizing the evolved system to detrimental effects in some cases. For evolutionary psychology to exist at all, perhaps even evolution more broadly, there has to be not only an acknowledgement, but it's of course fundamental to acknowledge the relationship between us as creatures and our environment. And wherever there is a disjunct or disharmony and wherever that disharmony is amplified, particularly as in more modern cultures to um, to generate profit or to create, ostensibly to create convenience, we're going to have um we're going to be at odds with our nature i'm not a kind of rousseauian guy you know that and, and i'm i'm not um adverse to the privileges that are all too evident you know even in the means of our current communication but what i feel like is that there's a sort of a magnetized center at the heart of our culture that prevents us from acting sensibly 
and acknowledging, right, we are evolved to exist in groups of these sizes. We are evolved to eat these types of foods. We are evolved to behave in this way. You know, like it's sort of for me, anecdotal examples that um, that I have access to just from you know tuning in, listening to, uh, for you are probably areas of deep understanding and expertise. The um, the occupation of northern France and the lack of access that people in that area had to, to sort of meat and dairy products, meaning that heart disease and cancer dropped in that area. And like, what I suppose is like that, uh, that what. What I'm driving at is the idea that wisdom is acting on on knowledge, not only in in, in your area of academic understanding, but in all fields. And I feel that it's not a kind of inadvertent coincidence that the the failure to act on this knowledge is not a coincidence. It's it's not profitable or advantageous to the organizing forces in our culture to act on that information so we do not act on that information so i suppose what i'm interested in is creating a kind of a curricula of understanding and ultimately movement pressurizing movements that can represent alternative ways of living that are not driven by relentless merciless profiteering i suppose yeah yeah no i i i i see where you're going and it's driving um, me crazy david it's exhausting <laughs> probably doing the whole thing to just get some status and, and attract mates that's the irony yeah well uh I, I i don't know i i can't speak to your your personal motives on, on this but um but my evolutionary motives yeah so but yeah but we have evolved the desire to seek status and to acquire resources, uh, in part because resource acquisition has been a critical uh, factor in attracting desirable mates and more and more numerous mates. And so uh, you do have these um, evolutionary motives, if you will, uh, for status and resources and attention and so forth. Uh, and so uh, because those lead to better mating opportunities. And so the issue is, you know, uh, where does it lead us astray or where do some people's uh, ability to profit through their um, producing products that are bad for people uh, that increases their resources and status? Uh, to what degree do we want to regulate those people uh, who are benefiting at the cost of other people? You know, and so, I mean, this gets to the issue of um, conflict, social conflict, you know, and they're and they're and they're always I mean, we evolved also with a lot of social conflict. And because just to, again, get back to the mating as an example, I mean, mating is in some sense a zero sum game in that desirable mates are in short supply relative to those who desire them. Uh, and so, you know, my gain is your loss. If I succeed in attracting a woman that you you desire to mate with, then that is your failure. And so, um, and so, this kind of social conflict occurs not just within the mating domain, but in the social domain generally. I mean, where there's uh, conflict uh, and competition for things like status and position and resources and all the good things in life. Uh, and so. What's beneficial to some is detrimental to others. And so I think that's a key answer to your question of like, how do we design a society that doesn't have all these things? How do we design a society that produces the greatest good for the greatest number is one way in which philosophers have historically uh, put it. But that's really a tough nut to crack when you have inherent conflict between 
what's good for some is not good for others. So I don't know. I'm not a social engineer. And so I don't, I'm just a, a working stiff who studies mating strategies. So uh, I, I wouldn't know how to design society at large, but I think the questions you're posing are excellent questions. And, and that's why I would return to the issue of there are some domains in which there's a profound evolutionary mismatch. And in some of those domains, the mismatch is really bad for us, but in some domains, it's good for us. You know, so as I mentioned, modern medicine and, uh, all, you know, longer lives and all kinds of other, uh, e even in mating, you know, the opportunity to have potential access to mates that you would never even encounter physically, ancestrally. You know, you were, people were limited by, you know, walking distance, you know, you only could mate with people that you could get to. Uh, walking, or I guess with horseback, when that that came into being, you distance expand a little bit more. But now we can, you know, you can find someone who lives in Singapore or you know Hong Kong or or Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, and then in principle meet up with them and mate with them. And so, uh, <laughs> so, so that's you know those there are advantages. Um, but then there are also downsides. So that's why I think these things have to be examined on a case-by-case -case basis. But I agree with your general point, if this was the point you're making, that a deeper understanding of our evolved psychology is critical to implementing whatever social policies we want to implement to create a better world. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Thank you. That's really great. How do this? This has been a time of of ongoing revision uh, between the in the relationships between men and women. It's been so this sort of widespread discussion of uh, abuse and exploitation, male exploitation of females. So we sort of live at a time where the sort of culture wars are prevalent, prevalent where people discuss what gender and sex mean. What do you feel fundamentally about the relationships between men and women? What disadvantages are kind of coded into us? What kind of problems are encoded and unavoidable? Why do you think that we're experiencing a kind of uh, these these kinds of tensions particularly now and do you think like a sort of a, like an to sort of round things off do you think like a high profile sort of celebrity focused case like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case can sort of teach us anything about male female dynamics I mean you've already alluded it to it a little bit with your holiday um, suggestion your holiday dating suggestion might I say yeah what do you think's happening socially and culturally and how is it at odds again with evolution these kind of revisions of male female relationships I suppose yeah that's uh well I wrote a whole book on that that's actually the topic of my recent book on uh, conflict between the sexes and in the UK it's published under the title bad men um in the United States it's published under the title uh when men behave badly but it, it, the subtitle in both cases is the hidden the hidden roots of sexual uh, deception, harassment, and assault, um, and I think that these are our problems. So uh, to get to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing, so I haven't followed the case um, in great detail, and so I don't I don't fully know the details, but I do know I have studied intimate partner violence, and I think that. The uh, there's been a spike of intimate partner violence, by the way, during the pandemic. But I think this gets back to a point that we originally talked about, which is these isolated nuclear families. So if you live in a group where you're surrounded by close kin, friends, genetic relatives who care about your welfare and well-being, it's very difficult for 
a, a man to say start um, abusing his partner or a woman to abuse her partner without other people saying, hey, this is not cool. Uh, I care about this person, the welfare of this person, this person's my friend, my ally, my genetic relative, my family. Uh, whereas living in these isolated um, units creates the opportunity for abuse that uh, didn't exist, you know, when things were more embedded within these social contexts. So, uh, and, and that's why I think the, the reason we saw a spike in intimate partner violence is basically people are more stuck than they normally would be. People on the cusp of getting out of a bad relationships, a bad relationship, then they, they're in lockdown and they can't get out. Uh, or they're cut off from their friends and social allies. This is one of the things that we know is um, predicts things like spousal abuse or partner abuse is, is when you are isolated and you don't have the involvement of your friends and allies and kin. Uh, and so that, that would be an example of an evolutionary mismatch that has really exacerbated, I would say, a problem that has always existed. Uh, so there are ways in which as I talk about in the book, um, men and women are in conflict to some degree uh, and both try to manipulate the other. Even in the most cooperative romantic partnerships, there's exploitation and manipulation, you know? And so the issue is, you know, when does it get really bad and what is a, a fair and equitable way to resolve inherent conflict? So, so just as it's very abstract, but you can take it down to, uh, a concrete example about, say, resources. So we live, uh, and this is another evolutionary mismatch, by the way, is we have cash economies. Cash economies did not exist. They're relatively recent, maybe eight, 10, 12,000 years old. So you could, people could not accumulate resources. So your resources, if uh, you're a male, is you, you take down a large game animal. Okay, you bring back the, this large group, large slab of meat, uh, and and you 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 share it with members of the group, um, but you can't stockpile. You say I'm just going to save this and store it up and get like ten carcasses or fifty carcasses. This is going to go bad. And and so cash economies, a lot of people that stockpile resources and create uh, inequalities in resource acquisition that never were present ancestrally. Uh, again, I feel like I'm just uh, rambling no, around. This is great. It's a really fantastic conversation. Like we're not evolved to in encounter inequality, and I'm also fascinated by what you're saying about like sort of almost inhered tensions in male-female relationships. Am I right in supposing, David, that that comes from sort of gestation periods and the ability of males to to propagate broadly, widely, simultaneously? That that there's a tension at the heart. Indeed, that is exactly one major source of conflict. So. Um, men and women have evolved somewhat different mating strategies. Uh, so there's a lot of overlap, but men on average tend to place a greater priority on short-term mating, uh, precisely because of our reproductive biology. You know, women historically to reproduce, they, they could only maximally reproduce one child a year and typically, you know, one every three to four years because um, ancestrally women breastfed, uh, lactated and lactation is uh, an an ovulatory birth uh, control device. Uh, so women's ovulation tends to be suppressed during lactation. It's not, of course, perfect. Um, men can reproduce by one act of sex, not that they do per act of sex, uh, but, uh, but the, the reproductive payoff uh, in evolutionary currencies of a short-term mating strategy have historically been 
higher for men than for women. And so we do have different sexual motivations. So like how many sex partners would you like to have in the next five years? Well, men give it a much higher number than women. Even things like the motivations for why people have affairs, if they're in a long-term pair bond or relationship, differ. So for men who have affairs, uh, they say it's key motivation is often desire for sexual variety, novelty, just because she was different, just because the opportunity presented itself. Whereas women, when they have affairs, they have affairs at, at lower numbers, although they're catching up uh, to men, uh, but they have affairs at lower numbers, but a higher percentage have affairs with one partner uh, and tend to become emotionally attached to or even fall in love with their affair partner. And I think for women, that's because a key motivation for affairs is a, a mate switching device. That is, they're with a mate, they're in a bad relationship, or they think they can do much better, or they're unhappy in some fundamental way. Whereas studies show that if you compare men who have affairs with men who don't have affairs, there's no difference in how happy they are with the relationship. And that's because the motivation for the affairs is very, very different for men, that desire for sexual variety, for sexual novelty. Uh, and so this is one of these ways in which sex differences in our mating strategies can produce conflict. Uh, because of course, infidelity, if, you have a, if you're in a relationship where the expectation is monogamy and, and not diverting sexual resources to those outside the relationship, if that is the understanding and implicit contract or sometimes explicit, then that's a violation. And people feel um, that their partner is diverting resources away from the relationship to other people, uh, sometimes sexual resources, but sometimes financial resources or psychological resources. But infidelity has been around forever. I mean, there's you know, even though we evolved with pair bonded mating as a key mating strategy, uh, that doesn't mean that it's been historically uh, harmonious and conflict free. Because you use the phrase mismatch a lot. And I suppose what's implicit is, well, you know, one of the many things is that high status individuals, and would you say in particular high status male individuals would have multiple partners? Is there significant evidence for that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What is the evidence, by the way? Uh, you can go to this historical record and you can go even to modern culture. So right. historically, you go to kings, despots, um, or, or cultures. So um, in the uh, there's a thing called the Harvard Cross-Cultural Sample. It's called the HRAF files, um, Harvard Area Relations files, where they've assembled ethnographies of uh, some more than 200 different cultures. Uh, and what they found is that, that approximately 83% of these cultures have legal polygyny. So one man can legally have multiple wives. Uh, we have that in some cultures today. In some cultures, it's, it's illegal. So in the United States, and I think in the UK, uh, it's technically illegal. And so, but in many cultures, it, it, it is still legal. Some cultures restrict it to four wives. But yes, it is only those men who have the resources to attract multiple women who are able to acquire those multiple women. And so that occurs even in the modern environment. So even, uh, even when it comes to uh, marriage and remating, uh, men high in status are more likely to do it and they're more likely to remate with younger and more fertile women 
upon remarriage and then divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage uh, again. So I, an extreme case from Hollywood, you mentioned Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, but someone created a chart of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio where they started his age, charted with the age of his girlfriends over time. And basically his girlfriend's age has stayed the same, basically low 20s, low to mid 20s. And they've remained low to mid-20s as he's gotten older and older and older. But that's part of male desire. This is another source of conflict um, between the sexes, by the way. So men have sexual attractions to young women who give cues to fertility, which is youth and health, cues to youth and health. And this creates conflict. So as their partner gets older and older, you know, men find themselves attracted to other women. They don't always act on their attraction. And that's why I think it's critical, now that I'm going on about this point, critical to distinguish between our evolved desires and the degree to which we act on them in our everyday lives. Uh, and if people act always acted on their desires, um, we live in a very chaotic world um, because a man can walk down the street and pass, I don't know, six women, say in London or New York or, or whatever, and have sexual thoughts or attract sexual attraction to six women in the course of one city block. If everyone, every man acted on those sexual desires, uh, that would create a lot of problems. So, uh, so we have to distinguish between our evolved desires and the degree to which we act on those desires. Certainly, and the only way to kind of uh, oppose or mitigate those forces of kind of social pressure or some sort of internalized ethical process which sort of leads me into the kind of areas that I'm interested in next actually but before we get into that David is there um, a kind of inversion of that uh, model that you just described for males where like a high status males multiple one is there a female equivalent of that you know I know you mentioned polygyny and the sort of the female version of that term but is it is there are there records comparable records where one high status females multiple males yeah no uh uh, well, the answer is no. They express it in a different way. So women also have status hierarchies and very are very sensitive to their own status in comparison with other women. Uh, but but women who um, have status and are um, high in status and influence and so forth uh, by virtue of, for example, uh, uh, beautiful actresses in in Hollywood or. Uh, or beautiful uh, singers or, or rock stars, uh, they tend not to act on it in the same ways that men do. So when women get high status, so uh, this is a terrible United States example, but I don't know if you remember Margaret Thatcher or say in the United States, Hillary Clinton, they get in positions that says they're not going out there and trying to mate with as many men as they can. It just doesn't happen. So there's a, a huge sex difference in the implication. Now, what they will do sometimes, though, is they will sometimes trade up in the mating market. Okay, but in mating, and this is another source of conflict between the sexes, or, or perhaps an unfortunate feature of our evolved mating psychology, is that men prioritize physical appearance and physical attractiveness more than women do. Women still value it, but men prioritize it even more. And so what that means is that women can parlay not just their status, but if their physical attractiveness to trade up in the mating market. They tend not to trade to for multiple sex partners, but they'll trade up in mate value. So um, 
no examples from Hollywood are jumping to mind uh, immediately, but um, uh, I'm sure it is the case that, uh, I don't know. Scott... Well, I'm thinking, David, about Bill Clinton and dear old Dennis Thatcher, who, let me tell you, is no great shape <laughs> wandering around the golf course with a scotch in his hand. Right. Although, although Maggie loved him, by, by all accounts. Right, right. That's right. But you take someone like, if physical attractiveness is more important for female status and female attractiveness, which it, which it is, what you would expect is, say, Scarlett Johansson or uh, I don't know who, who others, uh, Penelope Cruz or whatever, to, to trade up in the mating market when they can or when they have the uh, opportunity to do so. Uh, but they're not going to trade for multiple men. Uh, and, and there's no zero evidence that they do. If your field of expertise can delineate and inventory such plain and evident distinctions that are clearly based on biology, how do we square that with ideas around equality and even more contemporaneously ideas around the sort of the, the sort of query the nature of biological empiricism we evolved part of our psychology is difference detecting adaptations a difference detecting psychology so mention this in the context of uh you know uh beauty contests where even in the context you take take uh, the most beautiful uh pool of of women beauty contests tend to be with women all their their analogs for men with you know, weightlifting and athletic contests, um, we notice the differences between Miss North Carolina and Miss Florida or whatever. Uh, and so, uh, and so, because we evolved not only difference detecting adaptations, but difference detecting adaptations that value certain properties of people more than other properties of people. There's a way in which. Um, we we are designed not to be equal. So, uh, and, and that is why, say, like women, you could say, look uh, to women. Women have evolved in part to value men who have status and resources. You could say, look, but there's this guy. He's he dig di digs ditches, or he's he's a very reliable janitor uh, in the building. And um, you know what's wrong with him? You know, well. Given the choice, given the opportunity, women say, well, I prefer to mate with a guy who has higher status and higher resources, not to denigrate ditch diggers or, or janitors uh, in any way. But the fact is women value them differently than they value people higher in status. And so because we have these evolved difference detecting adaptations that are designed to value qualities of some people differently than we value qualities of other people, this creates an inherent inequality. So for example, uh, I don't know, you, for example, you're, you're famous and a celebrity and you've, you know, for, for many things, your, your books, your acting, your wonderful podcast, uh, but you have access to potential mates that the average person would not have access to. So there's an inequality. There's the mating market is inherently unequal because of these valuation adaptations. Uh, and so I don't think we're going to ever override those. I don't think you could ever create a society where you say, oh, you, women, you should change your preferences. Actually, you really should not discriminate against guys who are 
janitors or ditch diggers uh, or garbage collectors for a living. You shouldn't discriminate against those guys. Well, um, women do. Uh, and just as men discriminate against women who don't meet standards in part or evolve standards of physical attractiveness. So how do you deal with that? You know, how, how do you override that? How do we override any of these uh, apparently, and you know, when I say apparently, I mean sort of inventoried and studied biological uh, traits. How do we overcome any of them? And it's sort of something I was approaching earlier in our conversation, David, that if there are biological imperatives and cultural imperatives that seem somehow intertwined and uh, seem to pull also in the same direction, what kind of spiritual, ethical, moral force can oppose them and from where is it derived? And what opinions and feelings, as well as you know, understanding derived from your work, do you have about the role of spirituality? And by spirituality, I suppose I mean, as I sort of indicated, what internal forces can prevent us from being solely governed by the pursuit of advantage, whether that's sexual, hierarchical, economic? That, 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 that's a tough question. So yeah. I would, I guess, first touch on your question about morality. Uh, uh, and that, that's something that I've actually started to study uh, in my lab. And I think that... In your uh, lab, can I just ask what you mean by that? Because I need to I need to furnish that image, if I may. What, what sort of a lab is it? And what, what do you do about morality? Uh, it's a lab, not with test tubes or... Uh, nice. <laughs> uh, but what I mean is my, my, my research team, so my graduate students and I, and also a lot of cross-cultural collaborators. So, but when we started to study a sexual morality in particular, and I think that this isn't... Um, what's fascinating about sexual morality, to deal with one aspect of your question, is that there are elements of it which I think are part of our evolved psychology. That is, why are we so interested in the sex lives of other people? You know, well, in small group living, what, who's sleeping with whom, who's having sex with whom, who's cheating on whom, that has tremendous consequences for you and your and your allies and your and your kin. Uh, and so we've evolved to care a lot about other people's sex lives. And this is another way in which. Uh, the media parasitizes or hijacks our evolved psychology. So people are fascinated by in Hollywood who's sleeping with whom, who's mate switching, who's you know who's overlapping, who's cheated on whom, uh, and we're fascinated in part because even though these people are not part of our social group, they're not part of most mortal social group, but we evolved in a in a small group living where what other people's sex lives did has tremendous consequences for us, and so. And so we also evolved what I call moral hypocrisy in this domain, where what I want other people to do, the, the standards of sexual morality that I want other people to follow are not necessarily the same ones that I follow. Uh, so what's good for even, even in, with partners. So people think of sexual, the sexual double standard as a male versus female thing. And there is some, there are sexual double standards on male, female, but another interesting one that we discovered was self-partner uh, double standards. So it's okay if I, you know, have sex with someone when I'm at a conference um, uh, because it, it was just a one-night thing, and you know, we had a couple of drinks and it didn't mean anything. But if my partner does, that is definitely immoral. 
Uh, and so there's a kind of moral hypocrisy, I think, that is also built into our sexual morality. And that's just one, one feature of it. But you mentioned also cultural issues. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about morality and sexual morality is that there are definitely cultural influences on it. So you take the dramatic change in attitudes toward um, non-heterosexual individuals, you know, who go by, as you know, many, many different uh, names uh, these days. There's been a huge change in our sexual morality around that. So in me, even a decade or two decades ago, uh, people were opposed to gay marriage. Uh, in, in many countries, in some cultures, homosexuality is, is illegal. You can, in some, you could even, the, the penalty is death. So there, there's, uh, but, but we've seen in our lifetimes a substantial cultural shift. So at least in, in the UK and Western Europe and the United States, Canada, and a lot of the Western world, where most people view it as acceptable, you know, that what people do in their bedrooms is, um, is their business, not anyone else's business. And so, and so that, and I think that's been a cultural shift in our sexual morality. And so that's one of the fascinating things is, as you kind of alluded to the interplay between these cultural forces and cultural trends and our evolved psychology. Yeah, I'm thinking about it right now. I'm thinking about if it can, if culture can impact it, alter it, engineer it, and change it. Was it even objectively ever there? And that thing about sexual um, hypocrisy or whatever it was that you said, David, it makes me think. Well, that's not very well funded. I, I don't, I don't mean economically funded. I mean sort of ethically funded, and that there needs to be some kind of sense of you know like. I'll tell you some things about myself, David, is we're nearly, we're nearly wrapping this up and I don't, I don't want to burden you too early. So, like, I've had issues with addiction most of my life, sort of like a straightforward plain chemical dependency earlier in my life, alcohol, heroin, crack, regular drugs. And then, I suppose, sort of behavioural addictions, if the word addiction can be applied as readily in that domain because of degrees of complexity and nuance of, of which you'll be well aware and the uh, the only kind of resource that's been sufficient to tackle attachment to external stimulants has been a kind of inner not resolve but resource a sense of depth meaning and purpose that i suppose m m might have a mythic dimension which by which i mean a kind of an external narrative that i can rely on but it's also sort of somewhat deeper than that and that i would kind of, I suppose, describe as a, a, a mystical, um, a kind of a personal mystical connection with something beyond my individual identity, like that I have to derive purpose and meaning from something other than personal fulfillment that I can't be harnessed solely by you know the kind of biological processes that we've been describing and I suppose that what how can you underwrite anything that's happening culturally if it's not derived from a similar resource because even if it's humanitarianism that's basically come from Christianity anyway so like so like you know it makes me have some big questions really about what is the resource from which we derive truth, particularly when we're sort of seeking to use that inverted commas truth to inculcate and instantiate codes of ethics, you know, beyond our individual or even immediate 
group lives, you know, when we're starting to say this is what is right, this is how things are. Now, I know you're a sort of a, a scientist and you're kind of, I can tell in the way you've conducted this discourse that you're not saying, and therefore people should do this and therefore people should never do that. Is you, you seem to be, the evidence suggests, the research shows, da 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 you know, sort of, I, I understand where you're coming from. But like, you know, what do you feel about you know, a, kind, a morality that is derived solely from evolutionary biology amounts to little more than a kind of strategy, a sort of a set of protocols. It doesn't have any kind of undergirding. It's got no real value. Like, oh, well, we worked out that if you were nice to people, they might give you an apple in a month. You know, that's, like, <laughs> that, that, that's no bloody good. What I need is like some sense of the divine, some sort of, sort of sense of unity. Now, is there anything coming out of the lab on them lines? Yeah, uh, I haven't. Uh, that's a great question. I, I haven't I haven't really studied that and um, given a lot of thought to it. I know in the evolutionary psychology community, there's a disagreement about where things like uh, spirituality and uh, religion come from uh, to, to the degree that we're talking about those where some say that there are, in fact, evolved adaptations for spirituality and religion or religious beliefs and some argue that uh, no it's just a byproduct of other sorts of mechanisms so uh so i don't have a lot of uh, a lot to say uh, about that it's not something that i've studied uh but i will say that uh that again there's ways in which uh to the degree to which we have adaptations to uh, for higher meaning, higher purpose, or attaching ourselves to something larger than our individual selfish interests, those two can be hijacked and are hijacked by people for, you could say, immoral purposes. So I don't know, in the UK, uh, the degree to which these are prevalent, but in America, televangelists, you know, um, they get on TV, uh, I'm, I have a direct line to God, so send me your money. Someone sent me their money, $1,000 last week, and they're their business flourished and they, their son got cured of cancer. Uh, and so, um, you know, and that's another domain in which people can hijack our evolved psychology of higher meaning or de our desire for higher meaning and purpose um, in, uh, you could say, malevolent or immoral ways. And of course, there's also moral hypocrisy around that uh, as well. People, again, in the United States uh, who are known for espousing family values and strict sexual morality and so forth are caught with prostitutes and cheating on their wives and on websites like, uh, you know, seeking arrangements, you know, which just says life is short, have an affair. Um, so uh, many famous cases in the United States of uh, that kind of moral hypocrisy being, being exposed. Um, but I will say that people also use um, these sort of uh, higher purpose ideas to mobilize coalitions. So even, you know, um, I don't know if you've read much about the Vikings, for example, but, uh, and, and they're not unique at all in this respect, but, you know, you will, um, you know, we, we have to go to war, we have to conquer this other group, and because your name will live in infamy, we'll, you will be in Valhalla in the afterlife, and, you know, so there's, uh, these ideas are used to mobilize coalitions, sometimes for good purposes, and sometimes for bad purposes. Oh, thank you, David Bus, for spending this happy hour with us and uh, pointing us towards 
some incontrovertible truths around uh, the the way that we have arrived here and also posing many, many more questions. And also thank you for the good grace and humility with which you've conducted this conversation. It's wonderful to share uh, some time with you. Thank you, Russell. It's been a delight to talk to you and um, you've posed such interesting and penetrating questions and you know, will give me a lot of food for thought going forward. So I hope we have an opportunity to to talk again at some point. But I've enjoyed it greatly. I've enjoyed it too, and I'm sure we will. And I'd, sometimes I'd like to have a nose around in your lab and see exactly what goes on when people are discuss, uh, <laughs> studying mating strategies in, in, in white coats. Yeah, well, it's, uh, hey, I'm, I feel blessed. It's uh, uh, I get to study what to me is the most fascinating thing in the world, human mating strategies, um, and uh, I even get paid for it. So, <laughs> so I feel very lucky. Well, David, thank you so much for your time, mate. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with David Buss. Please let me know what you think of it and share your thoughts on what we talked about in today's show. If you're on Instagram, you can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets using the hashtag Under the Skin. Why don't you go back and listen to Daniel Pinchbeck? That was a great episode of Under the Skin. Or Dr. Vandana Shiva talking about fearlessness and fighting power. She's probably, uh, someone asked me who's your favorite ever guest and... I think it is Vandana Shiva. Uh, also remember, go, you can uh, have a little meditation right now by going over to Above the Noise and make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channels and my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.